Lucas on Life. Hello there, welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas, I'm in Colorado, and perhaps you've heard that we're having quite a week in America this week with horrendous wildfires in Colorado, in Oregon, and in California. In Oregon, entire towns have been wiped out. So I'd really like to ask Premier listeners to join us in prayer that the rains will come, that the firefighters will be strengthened and that we can bring these tragic fires to an end. This week, we're thinking about humility, a subject that is so easy to talk about, but it's not quite so easy to be humble. And let's face it, if you think you're doing rather well when it comes to humility, perhaps you've just lost your humility. It was Don King, that boxing promoter with a pretty incredible hairstyle, who said, I never cease to be amazed by myself, and I say that humbly. Winston Churchill said that we are all worms, But I do believe, he said, that I am a glowworm. But the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4.2 to be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. We're told to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than ourselves. And then when we turn over to the book of Philippians, we read that wonderful passage about the incarnation of Christ. But that isn't only a wonderful passage about the incarnation of Christ, a beautiful piece of theology, but it also calls us to see Christ as an example of humility. He humbled himself, and so should we. This week on Lucas on Life, we're thinking about humility. I'm Jeff Lucas. This is Lucas on Life here on Premier Christian Radio. We're thinking about humility. I have a confession to make, and it involves sin. Now, don't get too excited, because there are no juicy, lurid details to follow. The words romp and scandal won't be used. But I have been guilty, so I'll tell all. I have succumbed to repeated bouts of pride, and that's not helpful when it comes to humility. It all began when I bought an Apple computer. How quickly this prompted my downfall. Since then, I have become McSmug. I previously owned a PC that was surely possessed by a whole flock of demons, if the collective noun for demons is flock. At times, I speculated that my motherboard had been offered to Satan on an altar where young virgins were previously slain. My PC from Hades stuttered, froze, coughed, and on one occasion actually screamed. Perhaps I inadvertently spilled some holy water into it. That 666 megahertz devil actually allowed me to format its hard drive and barely warned me of the perils that would result. It was so casual, so unperturbed. Are you sure? It asked me when I told it to delete its own memory, so notulent in the face of an irreversible lobotomy. I pressed Y and wiped out my life. The computer ominously silent, it being empty, I decided to provide a soundtrack of high-pitched screaming myself. My falsetto anguish was probably overheard in Moscow. And then, oh happy day, I walked into a store resplendent with the blessed logo of the big bitten apple, chatted with a nine-year-old expert whose badge bashfully announced that he was a genius, and entered the glorious world of Mac. 
Intimidated initially by my shiny silver purchase, I left it unopened in a box for a whole year, wishing that there was an alpha course for those uninitiated in the mysteries of Mac. But then I discovered that there was. Muk discipleship is offered in the form of a one-to-one at the Temple of Delights, the Mac store. There was personal instruction with no questions considered off-limits and no quiche eating required. Joy of joys. But then, alas, smugness crept stealthily into my soul. I began to be sniffy around those who still use PCs, curling my lip with disdain, as if I was riding a Harley Davidson in the presence of a penny farthing or, worse still, a moped. Soon, I joined the ranks of those chortling superior types who roll their eyes when they spot anything made by Bill Gates. My un-PC behaviour meant that I condescendingly offered instant sympathy to anyone with a PC. In short, I became a conceited Mac bore. Ironically, what led me to smug superiority was the fact that the Mac is very, very good indeed. Whoops. There I go again. I was apparently a better, brighter person just because I owned one. It can be difficult for us as followers of the one who calls himself the truth. Of course, Jesus has the right to so declare himself, and in a world where relativism reigns and absolute statements are frowned upon, so right now you might not be listening to the radio, but are possibly pondering a tomato, the rock-solid signpost that is the gospel is a relief in a culture where the road to nowhere is often labelled as the road to somewhere. But revelation can be the pathway, not only to understanding, but also to arrogance, The haughty look becomes a disdainful sneer. The cherished convictions of others become fuel for our mocking. And sometimes we Christians even get a bit pompous around each other. I've met too many super disciples who consider themselves to be so spiritually advanced the church is now way beneath them. Gathering community, gathering in community with all its joys, pains, frustrations and warm moments is just too superficial, too pedestrian for them, so cavernously deep souls. Theirs is a potential Gnosticism with a look that says, oh dear, if only you knew the heavy stuff we know, your life would be so much better, saddo. Whenever we discover something new or have a junction moment experience with God, we're only five steps away from conceited deception. Our discovery or encounter excites us. It's changed our life, revolutionised our thinking. It's undeniably marvellous. And so, fueled with high-octane exhilaration, we begin to share what we found with others because they really need to read that book, we insist, if they just attend that conference or taste what we've experienced as so utterly life-changing, they'd surely be the better for it. Suddenly, then, we meet resistance. Our breathless sharing is welcomed by some and appraised and even rejected by others. Now we're disappointed, even a little hurt. Maybe we're hurt quite a lot. We smart at the realisation that all are not buying into what we so quickly bought into. And so now we begin to try and consolidate our position. We only attend the conferences where speakers who are from our crowd speak. We only read books that are published by our theological or experiential clan. And then, when we gather for warmth with those enlightened souls who agree with us, we begin to think of ourselves as those in the know, and we look down with sad pity at those who have not seen what we have seen, who don't know that we're in the know, who are not as blessed as us, anointed as us, deep as us, radical as us. 
We dismiss those who try to dialogue with us as sad, irrelevant types. We will not be deterred, we insist. Hey, presto, we've gone to revelation and encounter to smug deception and arrogance in five easy steps. We've lost humility. So when we're around people of other faiths or no faith at all, let's be sure to offer a listening ear rather than a masterly monologue. Let's treat their stories with the respect that we hope they'll give ours. When we're tempted to believe that we're first-class believers, while other Christians are just stranded back in their minuscule economy class seats, let's remember that the same grace has rescued us all. Whatever we have, we've been given. Whatever we know, we've been shown. The disciples who tear up their L-plates may have graduated in their own eyes, but in truth, they've simply abandoned their apprenticeship and again, they've lost humility. And if humility is hard, then just remember this. Each of us has been tainted by the taste of another bitten apple, or at least fruit, nestling in the branches of a tree in Eden's garden. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Jeff Lucas. We're thinking about humility. In John 13 in the New Testament, we read about a meal that Jesus shared with his friends, his disciples. It was just before the Passover festival. But this was more than a meal because during that occasion, he got up and washed his disciples' feet. Simon Peter initially argued he's quite good at that, but he had to realize that if you don't allow Jesus to wash your feet, you can't hang around with him. That's the deal. You have to allow him to clean you up. But then listen to what we read in John 13 and verse 12. When Jesus, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. When I was at Bible school back in 1837 or thereabouts, we had classes on preaching and teaching. And they told us that if you're a preacher, the way that you begin a message, a sermon, is very important. It's vital to build a bridge with the congregation, make a connection. And so preachers work very hard at that, sharing a story, an anecdote, perhaps a joke. And Jesus used a variety of teaching devices, telling provocative parables that got under people's skin, inviting a child on one occasion to stand among them where he taught, or when he taught, that it's a childlikeness, not childishness, that's vital for the kingdom of God. But when he began to teach about servanthood, wrapping up his three years of teaching with them, he begins his teaching Without words, imagine that this coming weekend. The leader, priest, vicar, elder, whoever it is that's doing the teaching, he or she stands up and begins to say nothing but just engage with some actions that are powerful. And on this occasion, we read Jesus got up and took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin 
and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I mean, we get a lot of detail there. It's as if John is wanting to build up the tension and uh, let us know that this must have felt awkward as Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And actually, he was addressing a specific issue. We read in Luke 22, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. There were tensions and arguments in his team. So what does this mean? I was at a prayer meeting in a house on one occasion, minding my own business with my eyes closed, when suddenly I realised that someone was trying to remove my shoes. I opened my eyes to discover a woman at my feet, tugging away at my socks, telling me that God had told her that she had to wash my feet. I did say that I wish God had told me and given me some warning. Does this mean that we literally wash each other's feet in foot washing ceremonies? And that happens in some sections of the church. In the Greek Orthodox tradition in Jerusalem, the archbishop recreates the foot washing scene with 12 priests, not only washing their feet, but kissing their feet as well, which I think is definitely a bridge too far. However we interpret this, let's know that Jesus calls us to servanthood, to humility. And that's not exciting. It means serving when you're not noticed. It means embracing the ordinary. Richard Foster says, in some ways, we prefer to hear Jesus call to deny father and mother, houses and land for the sake of the gospel, than his word to wash feet. Radical self-denial gives the feel of adventure. If we forsake all, we even have the chance at glorious martyrdom. But in serving, we must experience the many little deaths of going beyond ourselves. Service banishes us to the mundane, the ordinary, the trivial. As we realise that Jesus calls us to servanthood, not just with advice, but with a command, because he's our Lord and teacher, let me slow down here for a moment and just encourage you as a premier listener, if you are one of those who quietly serves in your church, in your local community, it's a call, a command that Jesus brings to all of us that we might show the world what he looks like. Bishop Stephen Neal says to be a Christian is to be like Jesus Christ. When Jesus uses the word blessed, it's the same word that he uses in the Sermon on the Mount nine times. It's the word makarios, which was the Greek name for the island of Cyprus. Back in Jesus' day, they believed that Cyprus was like a, a paradise location because of its climate, its soil and its minerals. And so they had this sense that you had it all if you were on Makarios. I don't know who put that idea around, probably the Cypriot tourist board. But Jesus is taking that slogan, that way of thinking, and he's saying, you've got it all if you serve if you embrace humility. And so, this week, as we give our service, our money, our goods, our time, our creature comforts, as we scatter good everywhere, as we take the opportunity, perhaps, to love the unlovely with no expectation of payback, as we embrace the potential of rewriting the textbook on how to be a good neighbour, as figuratively speaking, we look for sweaty feet to wash, we serve, we embrace humility. A final word from Martin Luther King Jr., who said, everybody can be great because 
anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. In our troubled world, an army of gentle, gracious, humble servants. That's what the world is waiting for. Let's not just believe in the idea. Let's put it all in practice this week. Lucas on Life.